1: Hi everyone, I'm Carla Nappi and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel and thanks for tuning in. It's February 2nd, 2017, and I just spoke with Laura Matacoro about her new book, Elusive Refuge, Chinese Migrants in the Cold War. This came out in 2016 with Harvard University Press. And I'm telling you the date today because I feel like it's a really, really important and interesting book, not just um, on its own merits and and in its own right, which it is, but also it's a really, um, for me, important and interesting book to think about, to talk about, to read right now. Um, given uh, larger global conversations that we're having about movement and travel and immigration and refugees and lots and lots of related issues. Um, So I don't know what the world's going to be by the time you listen to this, but certainly at this moment, um, I can recommend reading and thinking about this book and listening to Laura talking about it um, as a really useful thing to thinking through Um, The way that a history and a really critical and interesting history of refugees or of migrants, um, as Laura uh, prefers to um, discuss them, and you'll hear us talking about the terminology in a moment how a history of this in the context of an international story that puts Asia at the center might help us think about um, and contextualize what's happening right now. Um, So what the book does is it looks very specifically at the experience of migrants um, in Asia with with a special focus on Chinese migrants in the Cold War, in the context of um, late, 20, mid to late twentieth century movements um, and renegotiations and conversations around what it was to be a refugee, what humanitarianism and or humanitarianisms might look like, um, the visual cultures of all of this, uh, the politics of uh, migration and resettlement, and it takes as its nodes. White settler uh, environments like the US, like Canada, like Australia, New Zealand, it pays um, a lot of attention to Hong Kong. So it's a really, really interesting history of not just uh, all of these phenomena, but also specifically of what it has meant and what it can mean to be a refugee, um, to be a migrant, um, and to wrestle with changing notions of that terminology in a historical context. So it's a pretty extensive interview. So I will end the intro there and let you get to it. But I'll just say thank you um, as ever for listening, for your support of the channel by listening. And I hope you enjoy the conversation and I hope you get a chance um, to pick up the book. Because, again, I think it's a really um, useful study for informing uh, where we are right now. Okay, thanks so much. I'm here today to talk with Laura Matacoro about her new book, Elusive Refuge. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Laura, and thanks so much both for writing a book that's really fascinating and really, really important um, in general and also given where we are right now and also for making time to talk with me about it today. I'm really, really looking forward to this.
0: Hi, Carla. Thank you so much for having me. I am also really looking forward uh, to the conversation and, uh, yeah, to sharing some of my thoughts and my experiences in uh, putting this book together.
1: Awesome. So let's start at the beginning. How, Laura, did you come to work on the study of refugees in history and why focus on Chinese migrants in particular? Uh,
0: So, my interest in refugees started when I was working as a professional archivist at Library and Archives Canada, and I was responsible for the immigration portfolio, and I began to get a sense working with uh, the records um, and with government clients just how rich the, the material was, and then I started to think about how little had been done on the history of refugees. So my initial impulse was very much to... to write a history about refugees in the Cold War. And I was thinking much more, you know, in the early days of the project, thinking about doing a comparative project where I would look at some of the the refugee movements from Eastern Europe to North America, and then try and compare them to the later movement of refugees from Indochina in the 1970s. So that was the original premise of, of the project. And as I got... Um, into the research, I actually stumbled upon a single sentence in a book on Canadian immigration history. And it talked about the arrival of 100 Chinese families in Canada in 1962. And the authors made the point or the argument that this was the first time, uh, and I quote them, um, that Canada served as a haven for non-European refugees. And I was really struck by that single phrase, which is you know, a very fragile premise for an entire PhD project, but I was struck by that phrase, A, because I'd never heard of these 100 families. They weren't celebrated in the Canadian narrative of humanitarianism in the way that the Eastern European refugees that I had originally planned to research um, and the Indo-Chinese refugees, the way that they've been celebrated. So I was really struck that you know these 100 families were um, not captured in sort of the national imagination. And then I was really struck by the timing of the 100 families' um, arrival in Canada, and that 1962 uh, was quite late. The Chinese Exclusion Act um, was lifted in 1947. There were immigration reforms in 1962. So there was something about the timing of their arrival that suggested a larger story. And I have to say that single phrase just completely... Um jettisoned my original ideas around what I was going to be working on, and my project became much more about unearthing the history of refugees in China um, as they as they arrived in North America and other white settler societies, um, so trying to bring the history of refugees in Asia into conversation with the history of white settler societies and trying to understand the relationship. Between the burgeoning humanitarian agenda of the post-war period and how forced migration and displacement in Asia um, was central to that to that history rather than peripheral to it. So I um, a really, a really kind of my project ended up being a lot different um, than I expected, and, and, and in a way, I'm so glad—I mean, in many ways, I'm so glad that it, that it became the project that it did. It's such an important history, and it's one that um, I think of as very much a bridge-building project, where I was bringing a number of different historiographies into conversation with one another.
1: That's awesome. Um, Now, the project started as a PhD project, right? You mentioned um, that a little bit earlier, started as a dissertation. So let's talk a little bit about that transformation. Speaking of transformations uh, in the project, right, when you uh, moved from dissertation to book, were there any kind of major aspects of the project that changed, either in terms of the way you were structuring it or conceptualizing it, or anything else about that process and that transition that you'd want to mention and talk about?
0: Yeah, I feel like the whole project uh, was just one transformation after another. So within the within the PhD process, I I made the decision that I was going to focus specifically on um, refugees from Asia and understand, uh, specifically refugees from the People's Republic of China and understand um, how how they they came to to arrive in Canada. Um, but the moment I started researching that history, I realized how um, how connected it was to the larger history of uh, global Chinese migration, that I couldn't understand Canada's own specific response to uh, the movement of refugees without understanding the larger history of exclusion, not only in Canada, but also in the United States, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And so I was really fortunate um, uh, in that I had some excellent funding uh, from the Social Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and the Trudeau Foundation, and that enabled me to uh, go and do research in all of these different places. So I was in Hong Kong, and I was in all of these white settler societies, um, and it so became a much, much larger project uh, than I had originally imagined. But as I look back on it, I can't imagine telling the story any other way. There was no way to understand either the history of exclusion or inclusion in one settler society without thinking about references to all the others. Um, And so I managed to do a fair bit of connective history work within the PhD project. What I didn't manage to do was include the United States. And so uh, largely because... It just seemed to me to be such a large historiography, and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to incorporate it all. Uh, But I was fortunate in being able to research the American side of the story during my postdoc at Columbia. Um, And what that enabled me to do was transform the dissertation uh, in two ways. One, I incorporated the American um, aspect or the American angle which allowed, which allowed me to really elaborate the argument that white settler societies occupy a spectrum. And, um, and you know, America is often treated as an exceptional history in some ways in terms of both its position globally and also um, the experience of Chinese migrants to the U.S. and Chinese Americans. And by connecting the history of uh, American humanitarianism and the global Cold War, I was able to connect... Uh, to demonstrate that it wasn't it wasn't so much exceptional as uh, simply a little bit further along the spectrum of humanitarianism because American leaders were um, speaking so powerfully and so rhetorically um, uh, 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 or so persuasively, I guess, about America's role in the world and how it had to be a global leader, including on humanitarian issues, it meant that American officials and policymakers actually had to commit to refugee resettlement in a way that other white settler societies that weren't expressing the same convictions about um, Western democracies leading this humanitarian um, uh, charge that they, they didn't have to fulfill the obligations in the same way, and so it became very clear that America wasn't exceptional. It simply was operating on a on a um, a bit further down on the spectrum. And similarly, South Africa, uh, which tends to be forgotten as a white settler society, South Africa. Also, was aware of um, the vast, you know, the millions of people who were displaced from the PRC, many of whom ended up in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Uh, and South Africa paid attention, but because it didn't even have any pretenses about being a humanitarian nation in the way that can- countries like the United States or or Canada or Australia or New Zealand did, it didn't. It didn't. Um, Follow through with any sort of maneuvering around uh, the resettlement or assistance to, to Chinese refugees. So that became a really, really important part of the story. As I transformed the dissertation into a book, was thinking about, wow, you know, how how do all these countries connect, and and can we really think about the United States as as a singular, unique experience, or do we need to incorporate it into a larger history of uh, humanitarianism that is in many ways, um, premised on the actions of others, that humanitarian actions, countries were mirroring uh, each other's actions, or they were mirroring each other's actions in refusing uh, to provide assistance or, inc- or perpetuating um, uh, the ongoing exclusion of Chinese, Chinese migrants. So it was a really interesting exercise, and it was one that I had um, a lot of I'm going to say I, I had a lot of fun doing it um, because it was a, a chance to, to challenge some, some preconceived notions about America's place in the world and how we understand um, the role of migration in sort of shaping these relationships. Uh, and the other thing I'll say about transforming the thesis from, uh, uh, into a book was that the thesis itself looked at um, white settler society responses to refugees from the PRC from 1949 to 1989. So I started with um, the establishment of a communist regime in Beijing in 1949, and I traced various refugee movements, or what I call the migrant movements, and we can talk more about how the refugee label uh, gets applied, but I tracing these various movements up until 1989 with Tiananmen Square. Uh, And uh, for the book, I felt like uh, I had maybe overstretched in terms of the, um, uh, the chronology that I didn't have enough information about uh, the continuity and the changes as they as they uh, manifested themselves in 18, 1989. And so what I did instead was change the argument and say that you couldn't really understand uh, the, the events um, in Indochina in the 1970s and the exodus of the Bo people without understanding, that there was a long history of activism around refugees from Asia. And so to understand the West's response to Indochina, which many people have celebrated as extraordinary uh, and generous and compassionate, which in many ways it was, uh, but it's also a story of of decades of other work and other activism around trying to assist refugees um in Asia. And that, I think, laid the groundwork for the, for the, uh, tremendous response to the Indo-Chinese refugees in 19, the 1970s. So that was another major shift. that took place as I was transforming the thesis into book. And I, I think, again, it was another, it was one of those uh, moments where I thought, oh, yeah, this this is what it's about. It's about understanding this, this 1970s moment, uh, which I think is often um, misunderstood because it has such political uh, implications in terms of understanding America's uh, you know America's loss in the Vietnam War or the American war um, so that was that was uh, it was quite a late decision, and it was it's one that I think um, sort of brought together everything that was at stake in the arguments I was trying to make
1: great 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 and um, what, what we'll do when we get to that chapter that looks at Indochina in particular is we 'll talk about um, this phenomenon that you just mentioned in particular. Um, In light of how you describe in the book the way that white settler societies actually used the refugee movement to, um, as you put it here, instrumentalize the myth of generous compassion. So it's not as simple, right, even as listeners um, might think think about when they hear the word compassion or humanitarianism. But that word that I just used, refugee, is a word that you signaled uh, just a bit earlier um, was also more complicated um, than it might seem. And this is actually um, something I want to ask you about now as we get into the fabric of the book itself. Now, this is one consistent theme or problem in the book. The problem of defining refugee in particular and the significance of changing definitions of the term and changing notions of the concept. In the introduction, you talk about your own choice to use the term migrant over refugee, Um, and I think it would be a great way to just kind of open us out into the book to talk a little bit about that. So, Laura, could you talk to us about um, that choice, migrant over refugee? What's significant about that, um, and what's important for you methodologically um, about making that choice?
0: Uh, thank you so much for that question. It's it's really at the heart I think of what I was trying to do with this book. Um the the term refugee uh is an incredibly subjective term and I think, you know, I I'm talking to you uh, today, after uh, you know, a week after President Trump has issued executive orders around refugees, and so it's a it's a word that's very much in our in our minds at the moment. Um, but it is a, a word that has been defined differently um, over the passage of time. And refugees were once upon a, a time defined specifically according to what country they came from. Uh, after 1951. With the the Declaration or the Convention on the Status of Refugees, there was a very narrow definition elaborated that said that a refugee had to be um, someone fearing persecution and had to be outside their country of origin. It's one of the the most narrow definitions. Uh, And so, for, for me as a historian, this definitional issue really presented a lot of challenges because I wrestled with the implications of using a term that has a very precise legal definition, Um, I wrestled with using a term that I knew... Uh, Its meaning and also its significance had changed quite dramatically over time. And then I also wrestled with uh, just how um, loaded the term is in terms of who claims uh, the label of refugee, who identifies as a refugee, and how uh, governments and and humanitarians also use the, the term in really instrumental and politicized ways. We saw recently, it would have been last year, the in the discussions about refugees leaving uh, Syria, Al Jazeera said, we're not going to use the term migrants, we're going to use the term refugees. And that was their effort to try and depoliticize some of the conversations happening in Europe around economic migrants. Uh, and for me, that was a really interesting intervention because I had taken the exact opposite um, approach. Excuse me. I had decided that the best way to trace um, the the history of res- refugees was in fact to, to step back in a sense and think about what is it that refugees have in common before any label is claimed, before any identity is claimed or imposed. What is it that these people have in common? And what they have in common is that they're moving. And so by choosing the term migrant, um, I was making a very deliberate choice about not ascribing an identity or a label to people who are leaving for all kinds of different reasons. And that opened up um, two really interesting avenues of research. One, it enabled me to connect the history of uh, people who were described as refugees or who claimed that identity with the larger history of migration from China, which was so central to defining the identities of white settler societies from the, the 19th century on. So that was a really, really important intervention to try and think about contemporary movements uh, against this larger backdrop, which involved a exclusion Uh, which involved discrimination and involved a lot of the policies um, and and politics that actually animate Uh, contemporary discussions around refugees and their desirability as permanent settlers and citizens, language and and discussions that were very much um, akin or are very much akin to some of the the late 19th century conversations around the desirability of Chinese migrants amongst white settler societies. So that was really, really important in terms of, of thinking about the larger history. And then the other thing about choosing the term migrant over refugee was it opened up the possibilities for seeing when and where and how the term refugee was in fact applied or adopted or embraced. And I'm using those different verbs because all kinds of people were involved in creating um, these refugee identities or these refugee labels. It was the migrants themselves, humanitarians who advocated on behalf of them, uh, governments who responded to both the movements and the growing humanitarian campaigns. uh, And so there is this notion of a refugee process, which was really central to, to the work that I did on, on the migrants who left China in the Cold War. I was really thinking about when and where and how did these individuals come to be seen as refugees? And when and where and how were they not or were they deliberately um, marginalized from the possibilities of embracing a label that has a lot of... Um, uh, power, both politically, but also socioeconomically and culturally. Uh, so, because there was so much at stake in, in terms of the label itself, I wanted to create as much space as possible um, to explore how that that label or that identity was used or embraced, as I say. Um, so that's how I I, um, I came to the decision that I would use migrants over refugees, and beyond that, that I was going to use the term migrant rather than immigrant. Or emigrant, because people, uh, in the in in the research that I did, people are moving not just to one place, but they're moving to many different places, and in some cases they're returning to, to places that they'd been to originally. So it was really important to capture the fluidity uh, of the the history involved, because I think otherwise there was. Um, a danger in suggesting that people left and they never had a desire to return or they, they left with a, a deliberate intent to go, you know, to somewhere new. And that wasn't necessarily the case. So I was really trying to, to nuance some of um, the arguments around, uh, around what was happening as people left China, settled in Hong Kong and then went to different places.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. Now, part of um, what you talk about in the introduction as well, and this will lead us into um, the first chapter a little bit, is the way that a focus on migrants in Europe, and this is something that we'll see coming up at various points along um, the line of the story, actually marginalized, um, in the words of the book, the experience of people outside the European continent who also made claims to refugee status and protection. And one of the things that comes up um, in the first chapter um, is... Uh, As you contextualize the way the international community um, dealt with large-scale migration in Asia, in part by ignoring it, right, Um, even in the context of key organizations that were involved in refugee work in the immediate post-war period, Um, what was particular about the status um, or the understanding of refugees in Asia here. And you talk about the significance of notions of racial superiority specifically that separated and elevated refugees in Europe over other displaced populations. So because um, this kind of racialization of what's happening here seems also to be a persistent theme Uh, throughout the course of this story, Um, I thought it would be useful to talk a little bit about what was happening in this early context in the book so that we can understand how that changes as we move through the other chapters of the book. So can you talk a little bit about um, this, Laura? For you, what's most important for us to understand about this constellation of issues I just mentioned in order to lay the foundation for what's going to come next? (laughs) Um,
0: there are a couple of things that I think are are absolutely critical to sort of understanding um, the larger terrain in which uh, against which people were were moving um, in the post war period uh, there were efforts to um, to think of a, a more permanent uh, way of Responding to the displaced persons in Europe, um, and and refugee populations more generally, uh, and the way that the history of and this all led to the um, uh, the 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees, the United Nations Convention. There were a great deal of efforts between you know 1945 and 1951 in terms of postwar reconstruction, um, United Nations refugee and Relief, Refugee and Re- relief and the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Agency I always get rough, I always <laughs> get the acronym wrong I should have just gone with the acronym um, uh, the International Refugee Organization there are all kinds of initiatives uh, that, that start to, to push uh, people to think beyond just the immediate post-war reconstruction but also developing more permanent structures to assist uh, refugees and it's a gradual shift to a more a more permanent um, uh, institution in terms of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. The in, The initial premise is that, you know, the, the post-war organizations will look at what's happening in Europe and they'll address that situation. And it's all about Europe. Um, and I find that that really interesting and really telling uh, in terms of where the focus and the energy was because there was so much... Um, the res- Tremendous population displacement in other parts of the world, particularly in Asia with the fall of the Japanese Empire. You have all kinds of post-colonial uh, situations where people are, are moving in, in large numbers. It's very unstable, uh, whether we're looking at uh, China or Vietnam, uh, Malaysia. There's all kinds of population movements. And, that, and India, the division of, you know, the partition in 47. Uh, so there's massive, massive amounts of movement. And somehow that didn't factor into the policymakers who were – uh, attending to the situation in Europe and the millions of displaced people there. Um, and that certainly is how the, the history is written, that it didn't factor into what policymakers were doing in Europe. But when I looked at it, and particularly the deliberations around uh, the convention relating to the status of refugees, it became very clear that in fact these large population movements in Asia had factored in, uh, and they'd factored in a way so that Policymakers were um, crafting the most restrictive and narrow definition of a refugee that they could, in part to limit their responsibilities vis-a-vis refugees, uh, not only in Europe but as, uh, but in other parts of the world. So, rather than being peripheral to the story, the the history of, of displacement in Asia was was central to how um, the convention was was drafted, and the convention remains in effect today and. Is is sort of seen as the keystone of the international refugee regime. So it was really telling that, um, that the you know the policymakers that were meeting to discuss how how best to respond to the post-war situation decided that the convention um, would have a very narrow narrow definition of a refugee. And beyond that, that signatories to the convention could make the decision to apply it only to events occurring in Europe prior to 1951. And this is a really important, I think, aspect of the story because the way the historiography has developed, um, the convention is described as applying only to events occurring in Europe prior to 1951. And what's lost is that signatories made a deliberate decision not to apply the convention's definition of of a refugee, which which, as I mentioned earlier, Uh, is an individual fearing persecution, um, they made a deliberate decision not to apply that definition to other parts of the world. So it's not that the convention itself the convention itself is narrow and was limited, but signatories made a very conscious um, choice about how they were going to apply it. So it meant that the millions of people leaving um, the PRC and, as I mentioned, some of the other uh, displaced groups, that they were written out of the convention. um, And that has profound implications for how, how refugees in Europe or how migrants in Europe are then understood because they have to... Uh, in subsequent years, they then have to argue their way in. Uh, and it's a very, I think for, for historians who are who are interested in, you know, the history of, of Asia and, and especially global histories where we're trying to think through, you know, notions of the center and the periphery and the subaltern and this whole idea of writing yourself into Europe, I found really um, a really complex issue to deal with because I didn't want to suggest that... Uh, Migrants in Asia couldn't be understood on their own terms. But in order to draw attention to their situations, they themselves and any humanitarians acting on their behalf had to use the vocabulary and the language of refugeehood as it was defined to apply to the situation in Europe. Um, and so there's an interesting tension that that emerges between um Groups who do want support and assistance from the international community, who are prepared to use that language, and other groups who are much more self reliant uh, and not not interested in not interested in drawing in the international community in the same way. But that whole idea of being written into a European framework uh, was very very challenging to to write about.
1: And this, um, the importance of what you just mentioned, right? The way that migrants had to figure out how to frame or exploit or tell their stories and backgrounds to benefit from these changing definitions. And also um, in chapter six, we, we see this playing out in terms of changing discourses of humanitarianism specifically. This is also a theme that comes up throughout the book. Um, and it's actually something that once we get to the epilogue, we might talk a little bit about in terms of how this story might shape how we think about um, our world's right now right and and today Um, so I think this is a really important part of the story as well so as we move from this 1951 convention and its the ways that it shaped definitions of what it was to be a refugee, there are lots of other transformations in the story. And I wish we had like three hours to talk about all of them, but we don't. And so what I'm going to do is just kind of um, briefly sum up some of these transformations on our way to one of the later chapters. Um, and we can talk about any of this stuff if you want. As well, um, uh, if uh, as we kind of get uh, further along into the conversation. Okay, so in chapter two, you really bring in the significance of Hong Kong to the story, and this chapter is going to show how the term refugee, in the words of the book, was transformed in Hong Kong and subsequently shaped the development of the international refugee regime. And you talk here about the malleable nature of the refugee label in Hong Kong. It's a really interesting context. Um, And this is also a chapter for uh, listeners who are particularly interested in this aspect of the story that looks at public housing initiatives in Hong Kong and the relationship between that to the story in, I think, a really interesting way. As we move to Chapter 3, then, um, this is a chapter that looks at the critical role of Western humanitarians in shaping, and this is in the words of the book, shaping international interest in the refugee question in Hong Kong. Um, This chapter also looks at the Eisenhower administration's efforts in the U.S., Um, in in a couple of ways. It looks at the 1953 Refugee Relief Act, and it looks at the significance of expanding the U.S. escapee program into Hong Kong in 1954, um, and there it was called the Far Eastern Refugee Program. Um, And the significance here becomes in part the way um, what you call a typology of statelessness, particular to the Cold War in Europe, is going to shape the approach to Hong Kong. Okay, um, so this is chapter two and chapter three, and it brings us to chapter four, um, which I want to ask you to talk a, a tiny little bit about before we move to photographs. So, photographs are coming, listeners, um, really, really interesting. Um, but, in part, because this is a chapter that takes us into um, this really interesting idea of economic migrants, right? And sort of, you, you take us into the context of Chinese migrants in Australia and introduce us to the case of a stowaway named Willie Wong, which raises um, for the chapter and for the context you're talking about the issue of kind of economic refugees or economic migrants. Um, why is that important to the story, Laura, and how does that inform how we think about the discourse of refugees and, and the way um, it's significantly played out on the ground and, and in terms of individual lives in this context?
0: Yeah. Um so willie Wong is a fascinating uh character and and in a way in, in a way a very tragic story um his story is a very tragic one as well so he was uh, this this his story sort of unfolds in nineteen sixty two and he's discovered to be uh an illegal migrant in australia he has um he has not uh um he doesn't have the proper documentation, and so he's sent back uh, to the People's Republic of China. And this creates an outcry, uh, despite the fact that government had the Australian government had been pursuing deportations for uh, for decades. Uh, they had discouraged permanent settlement uh, in Australia for, for Chinese migrants, both prior to and after the Second World War. And what's interesting about the Willy Wong case is that the public outcry catches the government off guard, they didn't expect that people would be so agitated that they had returned uh, an individual to the People's Republic of China. As much as Australian society was very anti-communist, very much like the United States, uh, it's, the government thought that they were still within their um, uh, rightful rightful means to to pursue this deportation. And what it shows is um, how. How hard the Australian government and other governments had to work to to um, insist upon the under, the. I'm going to use the term undesirability. It's not the best term, but um, the how undesirable these migrants were, and so they use the language of economic migrant or illegal migrant to to suggest that they're not. Uh, fit for Australian society, but also to completely undermine the humanitarian agenda that starts to emerge uh, in Australia by the 1960s around... Individuals who are being deported back to a communist regime. And so it's a very strategic maneuver on the part of the Australian government to use the language of economic migrant uh, to suggest that there is nothing um, inherently refugee like about these individuals, though the Wong supporters associate, they don't necessarily associate him with refugeehood, but they certainly. Uh, are dismayed by the fact that he's being returned to a communist regime. And so we start to see the shifting terrain around um, assistance to, to refugees from, from communist countries in the context of the Cold War.
1: Wonderful. So he was, Willie Wong was one of a number of individual stories that emerges out of these chapters. And this is, for me, one of the really powerful things about the book, um, is that you're weaving together not only levels of Evidence, um, kinds of um, source material and documents and interviews, but also um, stories of at various scales to telling the larger story of the book. And these individual stories of individual migrants are really, really powerful. Um, This is crucial, at least from the perspective of my experience as a reader. It's crucial to the narrative of the the book. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, So in your bibliography, in the sources that you're citing, Laura, there are interviews, there are archival collections, there are primary and secondary sources of all sorts. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, for you, uh, what was perhaps most striking, most powerful about the process of locating and identifying these individual stories in these various sources? I, b- I would just love to hear a little bit about that process for you and, and the nature of your sources that lent themselves to telling this kind of individual story along with these other stories that it weaves, they weave together with. Uh, yeah, so I...
0: Um, I had, and weaving is a wonderful way of describing, I think, what I was trying to do. I was certainly thinking about, I think having had the experience of working as a professional archivist, I was very attuned to the kinds of voices that are both, um, captured in the archives and excluded. And so, um, I spent a great deal of time Thinking about how I could connect uh, various various sources and the interviews, the opportunities to speak with individuals um, were really exciting, and they actually informed how I thought about what I was reading in the archives and in other sources. Um, the strategy that I adopted for interviews was very much um, a snowball technique, where I would, you know, I had uh, I had contacts um, in in Chinese amongst Chinese communities in in Canada and also Australia and and New Zealand, actually in all the white settler societies. And those contacts enabled me to to sit down and chat with various people. And it was a neat um, experience in that I didn't solicit people on the basis of a refugee experience. I asked only... to talk with people who would left China after 1949, so much like a, the very broad def- definition I adopted for migrants, I applied that that definition to my my interviewing, um, recruitment strategies, and then the interviews themselves. And it was nice because people knew that I was working on a book about the history of refugees, uh, and but I never said, you know, I'm talking to you because I think you're a refugee. What I did instead was talk about their their experiences, and so one, you know, uh, one of the most, um, I think revealing, uh, stories came from Douglas Lamb, who's a bus driver in Sydney. And he was so generous with his time. And he talked to me about, you know, how he left the PRC and he ended up in Hong Kong and, uh, he was supposed to live with an aunt and then she wasn't able to support him. So he ultimately ended up in Australia because he was sponsored by another aunt. Uh, and he, uh, you know as he was talking i was thinking wow you left the prc at a brief window when the border borders were were opened uh by the, by the communist regime. But he didn't clue into that larger story of there was a brief opening. For him, it was he and his grandmother and his aunt went to Hong Kong, and um, he didn't think of it as a kind of refugee narrative or a refugee escape story. Uh, but as I was hearing it, I thought, wow, that was a brief window. You might not have gotten out if those border controls had remained in place. And how interesting that, um, you know, you, you ended up in Hong Kong, which really is this node uh, that connects... Uh, so many places in the story, because of the way that people were moving, and then circumstances were such that he was sponsored by an aunt in Australia, rather than go to Canada, where there was suspicions of him being a paper son, and uh, uh, and it just wasn't wouldn't have been as much a um, as a comfortable an experience for him. So it was very much. Uh, not luck of the draw, but there was a great deal of chance to his story, uh, which I think captured the essence of of so many of of the the migrants' experiences. And so I was, I kept that. You know, how, once I had that conversation with Douglas, it really helped me think about um, all of the individual stories that I was encountering and all of the interviews that I was doing. And it was interesting because in some instances, I would sort of press at the end of the interview. I would say. Uh, so do you think of yourself as a refugee? And I would provide some suggestions about why I thought maybe they fit some kind of refugee definition. And people were really not, um, they were very respectful of the official categories. So if they hadn't officially moved to a place and been defined as a refugee, they were reluctant to embrace that label. And that was very revealing in terms of how these various um, power structures and how these various labels operate. And it reaffirmed, I guess, the significance of of and the power of the refugee, refugee label. So using individual stories was really helpful as a way of critically engaging with um, both the materials that I was finding in the archives from government sources, but also the materials from NGOs and humanitarian organizations invested in assisting migrants and refugees because it enabled me to see the ways in which they were using uh, the term refugee Migrant, but also the way that they were using story to, stories to compel compassion and empathy. The stories that they emphasized as they were speaking to potential donors or to government policymakers. Um, so, individual stories became central not only to how I was crafting the book, but also how I was connecting these various archival sources uh, together. So, it was one of the threads that I used to weave to weave things together.
1: Now, one of the things that you talked about um, a few minutes ago was the way that in an archive some voices are revealed and some voices are concealed. And this is a phenomenon that also happens um, really interestingly in the context of Chapter 5. Chapter 5, Cold War Visuals, looks at the way that photography was a really powerful visual medium in shaping engagement with the refugee issue. And you talk about and you show us actually in a really interesting way the ways that photographs um, sometimes tended to show So, a lack of agency on the part of migrants. Um, You talk us through ways of understanding certain ways of photographing migrants um, and showing or not showing, right, absent fathers, women and children separated from one another as a way of imaging families in distress. And then the consequences of that for motivating and mobilizing um, public engagement and understanding of the migrant or refugee issue. In particular, to take us back to the Hong Kong case, right, because it's a really, really interesting case that we haven't talked a whole lot about, Um, you talk about the visual records specifically of people moving to Hong Kong in 1962 and specifically you show us the significance of what this visual record concealed um, and kind of what work that it did more generally so can you talk a little bit about this particular case the visual record of people moving to Hong Kong in 1962 what did it conceal and what kind of larger work did it do for the framing of the story
0: so 1962, as, as you can imagine, because it was the um, the year that sort of captured my imagination when I first decided that I was going to dramatically change my project, um, is a really significant year. And it's significant because in the spring of 1962, there is a large um, movement of people from the PRC into Hong Kong. There's about 60,000 people who move in the spring um, as a result of, of a loosening of controls by the PRC. And um, Hong Kong is, uh, the government feels absolutely overwhelmed by arriving migrants. They had, uh, through various strategies, tried to keep migrants at bay um, in the intervening years, in the, as they, especially in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War as Hong Kong was rebuilding. Uh, and so the spring of 1962 is this moment where the, the Hong Kong government, um, just starts to uh, um, doesn't participate in the charade of humanitarianism. They really feel the the pressure of of people coming in, and so they start to to push migrants back across the border. It was a practice that they had uh, adopted previously in terms of preventing settlement, but in in the intense intense um, days of the spring of sixty two, it becomes that much more dramatic, and it's dramatic because in part because there are photographers at the border. Even though the government tries to impose a a ban, there are Western journalists at the border who are capturing uh, the movement of people both into Hong Kong and also as they're being um, returned to the PRC. Excuse me. I have my water and I still have to cough. Um, (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) um, so, the, so in a sense, the eyes of the world all of a sudden are on are on the Hong Kong border. And with the 1951 Convention um, on the Status of Refugees, Article 33, Article 33 says you cannot send someone back. There's a non-refoulement clause. You can't someone send someone back if there's a fear of persecution. And so this is very much in... Um, uh, uh, the Western sort of sensibilities around refugeehood, this idea that you can't return people to danger. Uh, and so the visuals that start to emerge from Hong Kong are very, very powerful. And they're powerful because they are deliberately intended to um, uh, garner empathy and, and support. Uh, I would say the photographers at the border are very empathetic to their subjects. But what they're showing uh, to to Western audiences in particular are two dramatically different scenes. One is large groups of people, um, often wearing you know peasant clothing and and looking impoverished. And so there's this idea of you know mass mass. Need and mass hunger, um, and at the same time, they're, sh- they're they're zooming in on especially women and children, uh, and often and sometimes single men, but to show uh, you know faces that just appear so tragic and so alone and so broken, and so there's a very strong narrative that's created visually about the need in Hong Kong. It's a visual narrative that has incredible pull and power. In a way that, that the previous narratives, which were very text based, um, and, you know, might have taken the shape of sermons and things like that, didn't have the same sort of immediate, um, pull. So there's, there's an immediate po- political impact, uh, yeah, amongst white settler societies, with the exception of Australia and South Africa. Australia, because it's dealing with the Willy Wong case, and South Africa, because it has absolutely no pretensions of, of being a humanitarian nation uh, in terms of refugees at this point. Um, in Canada and the United States, there's a big push for, for resettlement, as in New Zealand. And there are, in fact, resettlement initiatives that that unfold, and that's why, you know, there were 100 families that came to Canada in 62. And accompanying the movement of the families, uh, both to Canada and the United States, was a visual narrative about how settler societies were reconstructing and rehabilitating these refugees. So the images that... Um, were transmitted from Hong Kong, as I say, were of large groups of people or of individuals who were sort of lost and broken. And the visuals that are captured once they arrive, once these individuals arrive in North America, for instance, are very much um, about reuniting Families. So the the visuals are of um, smiling families at airports. They're usually in Western dress. They're very the the you know the the clothing alone is a stark contrast to um, the visuals that are depicted in Hong Kong. There are large um, essays in Life magazine, for instance. Although in Life magazine they also show uh, women in traditional Chinese dress in the Changsans. Um but um, Uh, Again, it's these these reunited families. And that, to me, was a very telling um, message about what Western governments thought they were doing in resettling these refugees. They have this idea of um, uh, uh, facilitating a new life, a life of togetherness. But the, the disconcerting part, I mean, there are many disconcerting parts to these visual choreographies, But for practical terms, there was still concern about how these uh, refugees and families were going to be seen. And so to be able to show nuclear families, uh, parents with children, in some ways reassured the general public that these were not uh, individuals to be feared or, um, or mistrusted. And it's been really interesting in the past couple of years watching the resettlement of Syrian refugees in Canada, for instance, and the initial photographs that accompanied the arrival of the first refugees um, at the airport in Toronto and the the Prime Minister was there to greet them. And what we saw was the arrival of uh, what looked like a nuclear family. Uh, The woman was not wearing a hijab. So there was some careful choreography taking place around more recent refugee movements, which in many ways parallel uh, what we saw with the the refugee movements in
1: 1962. Now, there are a couple of chapters after this um, that I'm going to kind of signal moments of. We won't have a chance to talk about them in any detail, but I just want to um, uh, at least name some of the things that are going on there for listeners who will um, hopefully become readers um, when they find what's going on. So Chapter 6 looks at the ways that a range of governments, um, including New Zealand, Hong Kong, Canada, reconciled appeals to humanitarianism with the desire to regulate the movement of people in the 60s and 70s. And it looks in particular at what was happening um, in Hong Kong, for example, insofar as Hong Kong was creating new categories, in the words of the book, of residency and belonging. And the chapter shows that this had broad impacts for how migration out of the PRC was understood and was treated in Hong Kong and beyond. And this is also a part of the story um, where the chapter really talks about the ways that, um, linking back to one of the things that we talked about a bit earlier, migrants had to figure out how to exploit their stories and backgrounds to benefit from these changing discourses about and conversations about humanitarianism. That then takes us into a chapter... That looks at the ways that things change with the war in Vietnam and efforts to assist Indo-Chinese refugees by the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and others, and this takes us back to um, something that we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation. Um, The uh, chapter looks, among other things, at the ways that white settler societies were using the refugee movement to instrumentalize, in the terms of the book, the myth of generous compassion, right? Um, And it talks about some of the most significant ways that that plays out. Um and Now, there's so much more that we could talk about, but I want to make sure that we have time to talk about some, at least some of what's happening in the really powerful epilogue, because it's not um, just an incidental part of the story. This seems like a really, really significant part of what's going on in the book. So you take us in the beginning of the epilogue, Laura, into the case, the example of Jim Chu. This is um, how the epilogue opens, and I think it's a really nice way for us to open up what's happening in the epilogue. Um, Can you talk for listeners about this example, Um, Jim Chu? What's significant for you about what happened here when you were talking to him in the context of the larger points that you're trying to make in the book?
0: Yeah. So Jim Chu, um, again, a chance encounter that had such a profound impact on my thinking. And his story for me was so important in terms of thinking about the malleability of the refugee identity and how it might be claimed in one instance and not in another. Uh, so just by brief, brief way of background, um, Jim Chu was the chief of the Vancouver police uh, when I met him. And I met him because uh, he had given a talk at Canada's National Museum of Immigration, Pier 21, about uh, his family's um, arrival in Canada. And he said that they'd come from Shanghai and they came to Canada in the early 1960s. And I didn't hear that talk, but I, I was informed of it. And I thought, hmm, this sounds this sounds interesting. I, I wonder if he was maybe one of the refugee uh, families. And so I contacted him and I said, you know, I'm doing this research. Um, I think your family might have been a refugee family, just given the timing of your arrival. And he emailed back and said, no, we were not a refugee family. Uh, and he was very, very resistant to, to that idea. But he agreed to to um, to talk to me further. And the more that I learned about his family, the more I was convinced that he's, he had been uh, one of the families. And so there are only a few surviving case files at Library and Archives Canada relating to the 100 families that uh, did come from from China and then Hong Kong in '62. And we managed to figure out that his his family's file was one of the surviving. Um, surviving files. And it was fascinating. I couldn't, um, uh, I couldn't look at it in detail without his permission. So we had to do this complicated Privacy Act access to information request. Uh, but, so he got the file first, and he was astonished at the contents because he learned more about his uh, the circumstances in which his parents had come to Canada, the reasons that they they had initially settled in Calgary and they moved to um to Ontario afterwards and It was really, you know, as I talked to him, it was very much like I was watching someone encounter history in a really personal and profound way. And what was most interesting in terms of, again, one of these transformations that really um, animates the story uh, in a less elusive refuge was that after he looked at the file, he was then willing to talk about his family um, as a refugee family and to do so publicly. And when I asked him about it, he said, well, you know, I think that I can be a role model. You know, this is what I've achieved as a refugee. And I was, you know, as I, I talked to him, I was really astonished at how quickly he had changed his mind and his perspective on what it meant to be a refugee um, and and how that experience, you know, might resonate with others. So it was a really, really uh, powerful transformation. And it was... Um, it affirmed many of the things that I had been working through in my own mind in terms of how, you know, migrants seeking to move, given the fact that we live in a world that is essentially a restrictive world in terms of people trying to cross international borders. It's not a world that facilitates movement. Um, and so it was really striking to me to think about the different ways that, that migrants might be negotiating movement. And to see Jim Chu negotiating not only different kinds of movement, but different kinds of identities uh, was really, really quite telling. So I really wanted to capture that, that um, his story in the epilogue, because it spoke to the importance of thinking beyond refugee as somehow uh an inherited identity or or something that that people are born with or um that that envelops them in circumstances, but to think about how individuals actually relate to that, that label and that identity uh, and make decisions for themselves about whether or not they're going to claim it, um, which I, I think is at the heart of so many experiences. It's not to deny that people leave and move under extraordinarily uh, challenging and dangerous and difficult circumstances, but it's also to give them the opportunity to think about how they want to define, define those experiences for themselves.
1: Now, another issue that comes up in the epilogue explicitly, um, briefly, but I think this is um, given the world we're in right now. I'd- perhaps a particularly important note to end on, you talk here about how the story of the book might impact how we understand the challenges faced by refugees today, by, by migrants today, especially in the case of Syria, right? That comes up specifically. So Lauren, um, would you be willing to talk a little bit about that as a way perhaps of bringing our conversation to a close by really kind of opening up? Um, into today, right? Um, what some of the lessons or take-homes or, or questions or consequences of this story are for us right now?
0: Yeah, I think um, what I would say about the contemporary moment is that I'm reminded of how fragile uh, refugee protection, refugee assistance is. Uh, the book, in, in so many ways, is about um, Understanding the fragility that has characterized refugee movements or migrant movements since the post um, war period. And in, in researching the book, I mean, I was finishing the book as the, the crisis in Syria uh, got more and more. Um, uh deepened further and further. One of the, the people I spoke with, Tony Ens, who worked with the Mennonite Central Committee, talked about how depressed he was, you know, having helped Indochinese refugees in the 1970s, he was watching the news about Syria and just feeling so um despondent because until until last year there was very little initiative amongst um European countries or, or North American countries to assist. That changed um, in many ways with the photo of the young boy uh, on the shores of um, uh, Turkey, and um, Alan Curdy changed changed people's perspectives uh, and really. In really important ways. It took a visual image to sort of strike home the significance of of the tragedy that was unfolding in Syria. There was a real lack of initiative and it paralleled I think a great deal the kinds of um, ambivalence that that earlier generations had had, um, felt as they watched migrants uh, fleeing dangerous situations in Europe and especially in Asia. So there were a lot of parallels um, and and I, I, I guess I'm finding it hard to sort of conclude on Syria when I feel like Syria is actually opening up uh, so many new questions in terms of, you know, how how much progress has the world made in um, in being able to understand the nature of. Flight in this uh, restrictive environment, uh, in our capacity to empathize with people beyond the labels that we ascribe to them, but to think about the fact that they're leaving dangerous zones, they're leaving economically uh, destitute circumstances. Uh, I think the you know watching the events around um, the Syrian refugee crisis and the response that we're seeing currently in the United States, I find it I find it heartbreaking. I find it heartbreaking that there has been, um, you know, these decades of activism on the part of humanitarians, uh, trying to, in many ways, trying to restore or give the world a sense of the humanity humanity at the heart of the refugee experience and seeing how quickly that humanity is being erased because the refugee label has all of a sudden, um, been, is being used in ways to, to suggest, you know, violence and terrorism. And, and so it speaks to that malleability that, that animated so much of, of the work that I did with elusive refuge. Um, so, yeah so I don't know that I can actually use Syria as a way to conclude, but i i i i have to say that I just find it um I think as I was writing the book, I thought there would be all kinds of lessons about uh how we can see people as as human beings and not migrant not you know not refugees just just humans and I feel like that message is is just being lost in the current moment um, so I guess that's probably the way that I would uh, draw parallels or or comment on the, on the present.
1: So Laura, there's of course a ton of stuff that we could talk about, um, in the book that we haven't had a chance to, right? I sort of, um, hinted at some of, uh, the issues in some of the chapters we didn't get to, but there's so much more going on in the book. It's an extraordinarily rich study built on an extraordinarily rich source base. Um, but given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners before we conclude?
0: Well, there's a whole bunch I would have liked to talk about. And I too would have liked to spend three hours chatting with you (laughs) because it's delightful. Um, I think the one thing I would say um, is just about the importance of understanding uh, the history of mobility. Beyond specific national contexts, it was, um, it became so clear to me as I studied these transnational humanitarian networks and the, you know, the networks of migrants themselves and then looked at how government officials were in conversation with one another across national borders as they determined whether or not to provide assistance or to continue to exclude, um, just how interconnected and intertwined all of these histories are. And so, um, yeah, I would say that, you know, as we as we watch, for instance, events unfolding in the United States, I think it's absolutely critical that that people in other parts of the world and in other countries think about how our own histories are very much intertwined in, in the current moment. Um, so that would be the last thing I would say.
1: And now that the book is out and congratulations on an amazing book, what's next for you? What are you working on now and uh, what's currently inspiring you? So I have
0: another huge project, (laughs) Um, very much inspired by the work that I did with Elusive Refuge. What I'm working on is a history of sanctuary amongst white settler societies. And I'm focusing on religious and secular acts of sanctuary in terms of protecting migrants and refugees. Um, And I'm taking a, a really broad approach to how I define sanctuary because it's always been associated with um with religious spaces and particularly Christian churches, but in recent years we've seen mosques and Sikh temples serve as sanctuaries for for migrants facing deportation and what is so interesting to me about this project um is that it gives me an opportunity again to think about um how people are are determined to be worthy and deserving of protection, but it's not taking place at the national level. Uh, it's not governments, it's not states who are providing sanctuary, it's individuals who are making a decision in direct opposition um, to state authorities and state desires to, to deport, for instance. Uh, they are making a very... Uh, they're taking a strong stand. And in many ways, the acts of, act of sanctuary is a very subversive act where it's it's individuals and groups and communities um, uh, going directly against the wishes of the state. So it, it continues this this interest that I have in thinking about um, how people are deemed worthy and deserving of protection, but it removes the, the gaze from, from the... the, the conventional focus on the state and thinks, thinks much more about how sanctuary is practiced at the community level.
1: Well, that sounds like another really important um, and really great topic and project. So Laura, thank you for taking time out of that work to talk with me about this one. Congratulations on the book and thank you so much um, for the podcast. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. I, mean, I uh, yeah, it was great fun. Thank you
1: you've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.